Aloha, this is Dr. Michael Traub, and today we'll be mapping vitamin D on the 15-minute matrix. Welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. I'm Andrea Nakayama, functional medicine nutritionist and your host. This is the podcast that brings you bite-sized insights and lessons on how to use the most important tool in functional medicine and functional nutrition. Today on the 15-Minute Matrix, I'll be speaking with Dr. Michael Traub. Dr. Traub was the first naturopathic physician in contemporary times to be appointed to a hospital staff, North Hawaii Community Hospital. He served as chairman of the Integrative Healing Committee from the opening of the hospital in 1996 until 2001 and succeeded in gaining approval for the natural medicine formulary in the hospital, including botanical, nutritional, and homeopathic medicines. In 1998, he developed the Hawaii Residency Training Program and continues to serve as the Residency Program Director. Dr. Traub has conducted numerous research projects, including a comparative effectiveness trial of high-quality vitamin D3 nutritional supplements in replete serum vitamin D, which is linked in the show notes. He's currently a residency site director for Bastyr University. Let's dive in and discuss this topic that I know holds a lot of our interest. Dr. Traub, welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. Thank you, Andrea. Great to be here with you. We are talking today about a topic that I know holds a lot of interest for practitioners. We're talking about vitamin D. And vitamin D, it's not really a vitamin, is it? No, it's called a pro-hormone, and it has a lot of effects that are more like hormones than vitamins. So it's different from other vitamins in that way. One of the things that I always find interesting about vitamin D is the way it's processed in the body, sort of the biochemistry of how we utilize, take in and utilize vitamin D. And I'm wondering if you could walk us through that a little bit. It's one of the things I see practitioners often missing when they're looking at deficiencies. So vitamin D is one of the fat-soluble vitamins like vitamin A and E and K. And the most important forms of it are vitamin D3, which is called cholecalciferol, and vitamin D2, which is called ergocalciferol. Vitamin D3 is the main form, and it's in some foods such as egg yolk and fatty fish and fish liver oils. Bread and dairy foods are fortified with vitamin D, and there's many forms of dietary supplements that contain vitamin D3. Whereas vitamin D2 is of plant origin and it's present in lower amounts, it's found in some mushrooms really interestingly, mm -hmm. and mushrooms kind of like humans in that they have a vitamin D precursor in the skin called ergosterol in the skin of the mushrooms, and when mushrooms are sliced and exposed to sunlight, they produce more vitamin D just like humans do through oh. sun exposure to our skin. But vitamin D2 is less potent than vitamin D3, and it's a good alternative for vegans and vegetarians, but the main source of vitamin D is really the production of vitamin D in the skin after sun exposure. Part of it is stored in fat and muscle tissue, 
but they also require a couple stages of metabolism, first to the liver and then to the kidneys in order to form an active form of vitamin D. So if we're thinking on the left side of the functional nutrition matrix to those antecedents, triggers, and mediators, are there people who are predisposed to the deficiency? And are there factors like those in the body and the physiology that might also impact or be a trigger for somebody's deficiency? Genetically, there's really not too many people who are actually predisposed to vitamin D deficiency because we all have vitamin D receptors to some degree or another, but people who have polymorphisms in their vitamin D receptors may not convert vitamin D as efficiently to the active form as people who don't have those polymorphisms. Obviously, a major triggering event would be somebody who's not exposed to the sun. Right. And a major mediator would be somebody who is exposed to the sun and who's, you know, maybe taking a vitamin D supplement, for example. Right. Yeah. Or eating those foods and able to process them. What about skin color? Well, the more dark your skin, the less vitamin D your skin produces but it's not a major factor. Got it. If we move to the central part of the functional nutrition matrix, the area I call the soup, can we talk about some of the positive impacts of vitamin D when it's brought to sufficiency in the body? Vitamin D deficiency has been associated with an increased risk of a lot of health problems. Yeah. And therapeutic vitamin D has been associated with a benefit for many problems, but it's not across the board. There's contradictory evidence. And even though there are many thousands of studies on vitamin D, we still don't know really conclusively what diseases it's best for, how much, what forms. So it's a constantly evolving science that we need to stay attuned to the developments because what we think may be true today may not be true a year from now. Why is that? I mean, it's changed so much in the last decade, our knowledge about levels, dosing, it's just changed considerably. Is it because we're discovering more? What's leading to those discoveries? Because of the profound and numerous effects that vitamin D has on the body, it's just very complex. I mean, the human body itself is complex. Right. And this is a vitamin that as I said, is more like a hormone that has very complex effects on the human organism. When we think about some of those areas where you've seen a big impact on the body, what are they? I know there's, you know, relationship to cancer and to hormone health. What else have you seen? Well, vitamin D is best known for its ability to help facilitate calcium absorption. It's well known and has been for a long time to help prevent rickets in children, and it's good for helping to prevent osteoporosis and to treat osteoporosis, fractures, things like that, that anything in, that is involved with bone metabolism. But some other applications to it that are fairly well established, you mentioned cancer, is that women with triple negative breast cancer benefit from vitamin D supplementation, and triple negative breast cancer is a 
difficult to treat yeah. and more so form of breast cancer. So it's good that we have another tool for that. It's also good for prevention and treatment of prostate cancer in men and for colorectal cancer. So those are three very common cancers that vitamin D has been shown to be beneficial. And, you know, we still need more research, but at least we have some fairly, you know, a moderate strength evidence that it's good for those types of cancers. Yeah, so a lot of immune support and function as well. Anything else when you look at the central part of the matrix? I always think about some of these fat-soluble vitamins, including vitamin D, as being supportive for the mental state, for that mind-spirit yeah. area, even for kids who are on the spectrum, kind of a grounding hormone or vitamin. What else have you seen in that arena? Well, it's certainly been associated with depression. Testing for the level of vitamin D is important in people who are diagnosed with depression. It also may have profound effects in cognitive function, and like you mentioned, kids who are on the spectrum may benefit from vitamin D. Like a lot of vitamins, usually when you take a dose of vitamin D, it doesn't make you feel grounded or it doesn't right. make, <laughs> make any difference in how you feel. But over the long term, those changes can be experienced. You mentioned immunity, and one of the things that vitamin D is good for also is for the prevention of colds and flus, and it also will help to decreases symptoms and the duration of colds and flus. So taking vitamin D during cold and flu season is a good idea. It's also when people tend to not get as much sunshine and have less production of vitamin D. And you mentioned testing and vitamin D for me is one of those things that I think of in the test don't guess arena. Can you talk more about the type of testing that you use in your practice for vitamin D sufficiency? Yeah, there's this blood test that's called 25 hydroxy vitamin D that is the standard blood test. And the normal range is from 30 to 95 nanograms. And if you took a sample of humans in any part of the world and tested them, a lot of them would have levels that are less than 30 nanograms. Whether they were in a, living in a sunny place or had much sun exposure, it doesn't necessarily correlate with you know, the latitude that you live on this planet. And so here in Hawaii, we have lots of people that I test who are low in vitamin D. I mean, a lot of it depends on you know how much you are actually exposed to the sun. Um, and most of us are not running around naked or in a swimsuit you know, during our days in these sunny places unless you're on vacation. Right. We are at just as, as much at risk almost as people who live in you know, climates where there's less sunshine. So I think it's a very important baseline, you know, routine blood test to do. And you talked about the standard levels, that 30 to 95. What are you looking for in terms of an ideal vitamin D level? I look for mid-range, somewhere around 60 to 65 nanograms. Mm -hmm. But there's one exception to that. And this is really interesting. They've studied the effects of vitamin D on falls and fractures in elderly people. And they found that people who have levels above 45 actually are at a higher risk of falling and having a fracture than people who are between 30 and 45. So because vitamin D is like a hormone, think of it like this. When you have a hormone, say testosterone, and it's too low, that's not good. But if you take too much of it and it's too high, that's not good either. You have all kinds of 
undesirable side effects. Right. So you want to be in the middle. We think about vitamins, especially water-soluble vitamins, is like more is better. You can't take too much. They're non-toxic. But that's not true with fat-soluble vitamins, and it's especially not true with vitamin D because it may be that not only can you have you know excess calcium in the blood and urine from taking too much vitamin D, but you could also have an increased risk for a undesirable condition like falling and fracturing a bone. Yeah, I mean, everything in the body is a balance, right? And when we move past that realm of sufficiency, there's likely something else we are off balancing, like the uh, regulation of the calcium in the blood and bones, like you're talking about. If we go to the right side of the matrix, what I think of as the skills arena, there's some obvious things you already talked about. There's sun exposure, and I want to kind of bookmark that and come back to it. There's exercise, there's nutrition, eating the right kind of foods, whether it's the D3 or the D2. Anything else that we could be doing and advise that our patients and clients are doing to optimize their vitamin D levels? That's a really good question. On the right-hand side of the matrix, there really isn't anything there that's going to you know, make that much of a difference except for supplementing with a vitamin D supplement. And I recommend that because I do not recommend people try to get vitamin D from sun exposure. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And the reason for that is because excessive sun exposure carries with it an increased risk for skin cancer, particularly melanoma. And uh, it also, you know, causes the skin to have aging changes and none of us want those problems. And so people who are trying to rationalize, you know, um, being out in the sun in order to increase their vitamin D levels. I don't agree with that, that strategy. I think it's better to supplement it. And when you're looking at supplementing and you're basing that on your testing in that mid range, as a practitioner, how often are you retesting to determine if the body's absorbing from that supplement? If I have a patient that I test and their level is at 30 or lower, then I'll put them on 10,000 units of vitamin D3 for three months, and then I'll retest them. And I will expect that with that kind of a high dose, which has been proven to be safe, that within three months, their levels would be up into the 60s. Basically, with a 10,000 unit dose, I expect that the increase in vitamin D level is going to go up about 10 nanograms per month. So once they reach that level, then I'll have them decrease their dose and take, you know, maybe two or to 4,000 units of vitamin D as a maintenance dose to try to maintain it at that balanced level. I love that concept of, you know, bringing in a targeted dose and retesting and seeing what's happening. I always call this the art of the practice. We need to assess, recommend, and then track. And a lot of practitioners forget that tracking part to determine, is this something we need to do longer term? Is what I'm doing actually even working? And one population that I've seen have a difficult time utilizing vitamin D3 supplementation is the autoimmune population. And I'm wondering if you have any insights there, if it leads us back to that pathophysiology and the health of the liver and the kidney, or if there's any insight you can provide there. That's a really good point. I agree with you that vitamin D is really important in treating people with autoimmune diseases. One of the things that vitamin D seems to do for some people is reduce pain. And if a person has a rheumatic autoimmune illness, or they have you know, just low back pain, chronic low back pain, vitamin D can for some reason be 
an effective therapy for that. Getting into the physiology and the biochemistry of vitamin D and autoimmune diseases is kind of above my pay grade. I can't, I'm really not. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's just one of those interesting things that I think of as correlative versus causative when I see repeatedly in the clinic, like, hmm, what's happening here? And I've been able to work around that by coming in with uh, sometimes higher doses to begin working on that liver and kidney detoxification. It's like you have to get creative because we don't necessarily even have, whether it's outside of our pay grade or not, the research isn't there to tell us a oh. lot of the why. Right, right. Well, I love talking about this topic. I think it's one that, again, holds a lot of interest for practitioners. Is there anything else that you've seen in your research or in your practice with vitamin D that you think clinicians should be aware of? I did a study on vitamin D3 back in, that was published in 2013 in the Journal of Endocrinology and Metabolism. And we had a novel finding. What we did was that we wanted to do a comparative effectiveness trial of three different forms of vitamin D to see if there was a difference between a capsule, a chewable tablet, and a liquid. Mm. And there really wasn't. They all had the same potent effect at raising vitamin D from people who are suboptimal or deficient up to a healthy level. But what we found was that the label claim on those three products was not accurate, especially for the capsule and the tablet. They were way over potent. Hmm. And so we had to adjust our results based on a third-party analysis of how much vitamin D was actually in each dose. Whereas we were trying to give everybody the same, you know, 10,000 unit dose a day, you know, regardless of what type they were taking. Well, the right. people that were getting the capsules or the tablet were actually getting almost twice as much as the people who were taking the liquid, which was, if it was well shaken, it was closer to the label claim. And so there's a wide variety, I think, of vitamin D levels in commercially available products. And I think that's important not only for the public to know about, but also for practitioners, but especially for researchers. Because if you're not taking that fact into consideration, the results of your research are going to be erroneous. Exactly. Skewed results. That's really fascinating. I'm glad that we did talk about that and you were able to highlight that. And we'll link to your study in the show notes. Thank you so much, Dr. Traub. Thank you, Andrea. This has really been interesting and enjoyable to speak with you about this. The 15-Minute Matrix is brought to you by me, Andrea Nakayama, and the Functional Nutrition Alliance. The 15-Minute Matrix team includes music by my son, Gilbert Nakayama, and Carla Schaefer on sound production, as well as Renee Hunt, Natalie Merrill, and Christine Shook. You can visit us and hear many more episodes at 15minutematrix.com. And if you'd like to be notified each time there's a new podcast episode ready and waiting for you, please go to 15minutematrix.com forward slash notify. We'll drop into your inbox with a really short reminder that a new episode is ready for you. You also have an open invitation to email us. I'd love to know who you'd like to hear on the podcast and what topics you'd like to see mapped on the 15 Minute Matrix. You can email us at ask at 15minutematrix.com.